comedy skits, interviews, radio plays, and more. Mom, what does he mean by more? Phase 4 Radio. Metro Goldwyn uh, Mayer. Uh, wait, Metro Goldwyn Mayer presents. <laughs> <laughs> bah, my neighbors might think I'm crazy. Bah, <laughs> da, da. That wasn't all the notes, but uh, two thousand one, <laughs> a podcast, a space podcast. Oh, that's oh, even better! Oh. Damn, you just killed it, bro. <laughs> just the intro to this movie is amazing. Before they even get to the dawn of man, that whole like part, it, it's like one of the best title sequences I've ever seen. Oh yeah, de- definitely just uh, like a, a shot composition level on a gravitas level. I mean, it yeah. still looks so crisp, you know, even today. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean as as is pretty much everything about the film, but especially that that opening sequence. Yeah, the first thing we we see, which comes into play later, is within the intro. We, we, we come above the moon and then we see the earth and then the sun. So everything is in alignment. And then we see the 2001. And then it comes in the dawn of man. How do you guys want to start this? Do you want to go scene for like, like each chunk, like the dawn of man, and then go to the next part and kind of go over each one? Yeah, I mean, it's broken up into, into you know, four distinct acts, you know, which makes it kind of easy you know, to talk about it like that. So... Yeah, it's just like the the first man, the dawn of man part. Okay, so right, I interrupted you guys because I found this. Um, uh, this was written by Johnny, a user of IMDb.com, and I just thought it was like a funny, like really basic summarization of this film, just for okay. anyone who hasn't seen it in a while. So, two thousand one, a space odyssey. After discovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, mankind sets off on a quest to find its origins with help from intelligent supercomputer HAL 9000. There so I go. feel like that's well, like... He's, if he's, it, not, he's not wrong. I mean, it, like... It, like, if it was like a Disney film or something. <laughs> like, if, it, if it had absolutely no... Uh, what do you call that? Like, when you're... When you're subtext. That's like that's like a, a screenplay yeah, with no yeah. subtext. But anyway, uh, with help from Hal Nine Thousand, the easiest to follow part of the film is the Hal Nine Thousand part. It that whole section is kind of in itself the easiest to explain. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, that's where the sort of like most easily understood conflict of the movie right comes from. But the relation it has to the end and the beginning is where the movie really becomes interesting as, as you're trying to figure out what, what they're, what they're putting out there. Right. Right. And actually, you know, um, before we, we begin, uh, just sort of like a general preface to the movie. Um, I mean, you know, a, a lot has been said about the movie and I'm happy to talk about it some more. Um, I mean, this is simply, you know, I consider it one of the greatest movies of, of all time. Yeah. I would say it's, maybe the closest example to like a perfect film that I've seen just in terms of what it accomplishes, you know, on, on its own terms. I, you know, films like this don't come around a lot. No, it's a masterpiece. It's it's a masterpiece. 
And a lot of people consider it Stanley Kubrick's greatest film. A lot of people consider some of his other films his greatest film. He's an incredible filmmaker. So, uh, but uh, yeah, just the fact that even anyone would put that at the top of his list in itself is pretty impressive. Right. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen every Kubrick movie. I would probably agree with with that uh, assessment. Um, I'd want to watch all of them first before officially saying that. But uh, it's 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 my favorite Kubrick movie. So. Before we go into all the great things about this movie, though, I do want to point out a couple of things which are kind of funny about this movie, which I noticed when Johanna was watching it with me. If you're not really like a cinephile and stuff, it is possible to watch this movie and be like, first of all, the sound design of this movie is pretty insane. She's like, what the fuck are you watching? What are these noises? And I'm like, I'm sorry. There's like a really long (laughs) atmospheric noise for like 20 minutes. I'm sorry. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um yeah those those long stretches <laughs> yeah totally a lot of the scenes where there's dialogue there isn't music that's that's interesting too but uh yeah d- d- uh for instance i was was t- the, with the intro we did to the podcast though like that cacophony atonal sounding uh choir right yeah i forget what that movement or what that you know composition is called um maybe i'll look it up so i found the music really amazing and so I actually Definitely. have most of it written down. And yeah, the cacophony of the voices. So that is, oh, I forgot his name. I knew him all last night. Leggetti. So I think the one we're doing, the, the voices, I think that's that's kind of like the monolith music. And that one's called Requiem. Mm. And then I think the film, it might be Donna Man. It's another piece by Leggetti, Atmospheres. Okay. You know what I just realized? I, I actually got it wrong. The, the intro to the movie is isn't the isn't the voices. It's it's it's, not. it's, it's instruments and there's a cacophony right. of instruments. But later right. on, the voices are kind of they're similar. Right, right. They're very yeah. similar though. So you, I, yeah. I, I got it confused. Uh-huh. It will still hopefully work. <laughs> like, that's still an awesome fun opening that we did, and I don't regret it. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? We're, we're not Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you guys? I so I haven't. I don't know how many times I've seen this film. Maybe only once before. I thought something was going on with my application i was using because the beginning of the film it's like a solid two or three minutes of just music right and 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 darkness and you know what my theory is it's like biblical kind of it's like in the beginning there was darkness so you're just sitting there in darkness and it's about and and that's a tie into the the movie is essentially to me it's like putting together these ideas of where mankind is from or humankind is from mixing this uh idea of uh another life form like a godlike or alien like whatever right right. helping the humans to to evolve kind of like as a godlike creature but also with the with the darwinism kind of thing going on it's kind of a weird mashup of things um maybe not darwinism but you you know what i'm saying like uh i i I get what what you're saying you know i actually had um sorry not not to derail where where you were talking but i i had a a much more kind of simple interpretation um just because this is a a movie you know also with an intermission (laughs) yeah um, I almost feel like this was this was put in the beginning uh, just for people who were potentially arriving, you know, like a couple minutes late <laughs> to the screening, mm. you know, just so they have like you know the full uh, experience. Um, but of course, still very you know atmospheric and very eerie in tone setting, you know. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, in that beginning, I think there's five octaves going on, and going back to what you were saying, Doc. Yeah, some people theorize that that's supposed to. Uh, represent the cosmos 
it definitely it, it also has this eerie like ominous sound to it oh definitely yeah but yeah. i mean when i think of space it is terrifying you know it is we did not develop there like it's kind of like a lo- lovecraft uh, a lot of what has been said about this movie and what i really agree with is that this is about the awe and terror and beauty of ascending into space and like you know uh in and you know exploring the the outer limits so it's it's that mixture of again you know just terror and awe you know just that, that kind of gravitas mm-hmm. of, of change and transformation what i think is interesting according to my research is from the early production kubrick he decided he wanted the film to be a primarily non-verbal experience that did not rely on the traditional techniques of narrative cinema in which music would play a vital role in evoking particular moods. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like in the space with the Blue Danube. It's it's like a, ba- a waltz. And yeah. literally, you see the spacecraft dancing with each other in a, in a ballet. And it's pretty right. awesome. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. some of the most, and so those are some of the most powerful images in this film. And I would say something about this film is it's not a timeless film. Because it is a a movie that's <laughs> pretty old that's based on a time that's already passed. But it does have parts in it that are just masterpieces within themselves. Just these little parts of this movie are are standalone images and stuff. It's like these amazing paintings like that are brought to life and it, it's pretty it's it's a pretty intense movie. And and definitely with what you're saying with the music doing all that, especially like in the Dawn of Man. And when it brings in these uh, these atonal sounds and, and every and the and the apes start touching the monolith, you know the whole nonverbal experience thing. It's it's the difference between telling and showing. You know, like yeah. again, you're literally showing the audience what they're meant to to understand, not just not just spelling it out. You know, mm-hmm. another interesting uh, thing about the music is that. He had some, I think it was the composer of Dr. Strangelove. He had that composer write an original score. And for a lot of big films, even, you know, nowadays, you're going to have an original score. Uh, uh-huh. And I mentioned this before. I worked at an office that paid these musicians who would work on this original music uh, residuals. So they'd get 1% of the revenue generated. But Stanley Kubrick didn't do that. So this composer had wrote this whole score and I guess he found out at the screening. The composer found out at the screening. Wow. Kubrick just, yeah, it's I find that fascinating. All the music that Kubrick used, he had picked out as, um, they were pieces that he was using as examples of like, okay, this is going to guide the composer. Right. Yeah. And then, and then he was, he was just like, fuck it. We're just going to use the classical pieces. <laughs> yeah. So he just he's like, yeah, you them. definitely did not pull off the blue Danube, dude. Sorry. This is, this is, yeah. So, so all the music you hear actually was not made for the film. Right. Sometimes we do see that with like, you know, a, a lot of films you, you see, they'll use some popular song, but then there will also be this score for you know made specifically for the film none of the music was made for the film it was all made previously interesting i wanted to ask you something else peter because you told me that you you did you did some digging on the music uh i noticed that they're both strauss is is it are they related no composers that's so that's bizarre yeah so the two composers you're talking about are the two 
So a lot of the music is this classical, like orchestral. And I think the, the so those two Strauss pieces by two different composers with the last name Strauss, those are like the two pieces of music that the film, I think, has popularized. Yeah. And everybody is familiar with them. And that's the... The thus the, the the thus spoke there Zarathustra, which is the one we were doing in the beginning with the timpani, the like bump 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 bump. Correct, bump. yeah. That epic music, it always comes in when he's representing man evolving or taking the next step in his evolution. And then there's the the blue Danube, the waltz you were talking about. You'll you'll see pretty commonly thus spoke Zarathustra, whatever it's called. It's it's referred to as the two thousand one theme. Yeah, I think just as often now, if not more often than the original naming of it. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause it just made it its own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And another huge factor of that is anyone that's ever, uh, parroting this movie and they're going to use that theme and, and you know, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, doc and I actually used it for a short film we made. <laughs> I, I would encourage people to look this up. Just look up like 2001 space odyssey music fail. It's got to be an elementary school or middle school band yeah, uh, that are trying to do the theme music with some trumpets. It is probably like the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. That that like it's because so, it's trying to be so epic, but it's so, it's such a fucking funny. No, I, 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 I think I think I know I know the thing that you guys talked about. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. awesome. So um, in the dawn of man. We see that the, the apes are having to share their resources with these uh, pig-type animals. I'm not sure what those are called. Those animals are actually from South America, by the way, mm. which is interesting because oh, really? I think they're trying to portray it to be Africa-ish. Keep in mind, this was supposed to be prehistoric or whatever. So who knows what was roaming around where back then. But there is like a leopard that has a, a zebra. But anyway, uh, the, the, the apes are, are um, they're not very human-esque yet, I guess, because they're just kind of complacently feeding around a bunch of these pig creatures and they're just like oh we're idiots we're just and we're totally afraid of this cat and we're just you know basically living a pretty a pretty well, they have reason to be afraid of the cat i mean it fucking kills one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <You know. laughs> they're not at the they're not at the top of the food chain no no so yeah they're, they're feeding around you know the uh the other animals you know they get attacked by by a leopard and then they move on to you know watering hole but then another family or gang or tribe of apes, you know, comes in and you know muscles in on their turf and forces right, them right. out of there. So they're all, you know, hiding, you know, wondering like, oh shit, how are we gonna survive? And then they wake up to find the monolith uh, right. just in front of them. Uh-huh. And cue crazy music and they all touch yeah. it. And that, that that seems really pretty pretty intense. Yeah, because and you know, it's just like it's just so striking. It's just kind of simple perfection. It seems very imposing in the midst of, of everything else. You know, it feels like truly kind of alien mm -hmm. in the midst of, uh, you know, the earth happenings around them. And also uh, you get a shot looking upwards where, again, yeah, everything seems to be, you know, in alignment, you know, with like the, uh, the monolith and the sun right. kind of eclipsing. I find the Donna Man section in the beginning. I think those the scenery is really beautiful. And I was curious yeah. where that was filmed. If it was domestically or or outside the country, it's a mix, right? So apparently, the backgrounds were shot in Africa. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Kubrick, I, maybe you guys can tell me what this means. So, avoid. So this says avoiding the cheesy look of back proje projection. The perfectionist Kubrick came up with a sophisticated system of 
front projection using a screen 100 feet long and 40 feet tall. It's wh- where the projection's coming from, I suppose. Instead of coming from the back, it's com- it's shooting from the front? That's that's trippy. It says, notice how the director cleverly keeps the hominids, the apes, in shadow against the dazzling background. Mm-hmm. So they're actually getting projected. There's a projector in front of the actors projecting the background that's right. behind them, and they're actually in shadow. Trippy. I will. Yeah, I'll have to. I, I wish. I wish I knew that before I watched it. I'll have to I did notice there again. are a few scenes in the intro on the left and right top corners. You can see that it is a backdrop. I noticed mm. it. I, that you can see it's like crinkled or something. But it's very. It's hard. It's hard to make out. But I did see it. And that dude in the in the ape costume, he really got like pounced on by a leopard, right? I mean, that looks like he gets tackled. <laughs> yeah, I was I was wondering, you know, what the circumstances of that were. And that yeah, seems it seems that must have been the case. Looks legit. So it cuts from the monolith and the crazy move, music and it just like cuts to silence. And then it has the uh, the ape that's uh, sitting in the pile, pile of bones. Yeah, just like play. Yeah, just playing around and stuff. And then Q thus spoke there at and he right. kind of starts like putting the pieces together mentally the, like contemplating like oh shit maybe i can do something with this and that kind of symbolizes you know the, the you change. know the the use of tools right that, that is will pretty ins- defined man that is pretty crazy to think about that like you just be walking around these with five fingers wait a minute i can pick this up it's like evolution's weird yeah you'd have to imagine the whole other context it'd yeah it'd be like us yeah learning about like a, a skill that we didn't know how to use and it you know, right. totally changing the game like how do you even imagine that you know like fire yeah and then it cuts to them just feeding on the, all the all the uh these pig, pig creatures that they were hanging around them before so they're like oh they're already best of right. them and then they're back yeah. to the watering hole and the first thing <laughs> they, and then yeah uh they learn to uh make war with these other apes and bash the shit out of its skull and that was the uh, the accomplishment, I guess, that the monolith gives the gave the apes. It's just kind of dark. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, yeah, they um, yeah, they take the watering hole back. Man knows how to use tools, and then you immediately get the iconic match cut of him throwing the bone into the air, cut with the satellite. Right. And you know what's funny about that scene is I had seen that scene before like years ago and i never i, I didn't really visually uh, i didn't realize that I, that I was visually seeing a match cut until years later when I, I, it was pointed out and i was like oh oh yeah that is that's cool so yeah the scene you guys are talking about is this bone that went from you know just an object to now the man or early man use it as a weapon gets tossed in the air match cut to a satellite i guess that satellite was supposed to represent a weapon also Really? Yeah. Huh. I, I I read up on some interpretations. Um. Yeah. It was originally intended to be uh to be like spelt out in the film to be like carrying like nu- nuclear weapons. Whereas uh, Kubrick later opted to just have it you know just be kind of ambiguous and let the audience decide. But yeah, it was supposed to be yeah this this kind of you know leap you know like showing like oh we've gone so far but also not very far. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And then we go to the sweet ass Pan American space shuttle, and I find these these parts of the movie to be actually be really interesting. Putting the Pan American on the space shuttle was was pretty cool. It definitely sets the movie in a, in a time. I don't think Pan America's not around anymore, right? Nope. That's like the only. That's like the only uh, pr- provably inaccurate thing about the movie. Everything right. else, you know, really holds up. 
but um yeah the the only thing is pan american isn't around anymore right and it has that whole like scene where it hit him and zero g and all, or well, no anti-gravity lack of gravity what, what would you call it? zero gravity zero gravity that's it and that, that was definitely probably really cool at the time to see that uh with with her you know her with her grip shoes coming along oh yeah and then uh and then we get into that cool uh, the 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 blue Danube, however you pronounce that ballet waltz uh, of of the of the spaceship docking, which is so cool. And then once he's on that base, I don't know if you guys picked up on the little advertisements like Howard Johnson's and the Bell telephone inside of it, and even the name. I think the name of the space uh, shuttle or what is it called? It's the space station. It says Hilton Space Station on the wall, like it's branded by Hilton Hotels. Yep, yep. We got capitalism. In yeah. space, uh huh, leading the way, and we're friends with the Russians, which is nice in 1968. Uh, <laughs> so, oh yeah, you know one one thing. Um, oh, sorry, yeah, I'll I'll play that later when we get to it. But yeah, very 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 interesting conversation that they have. Oh yeah, about there. the the conversation they have about the epidemic going on because yeah, he's making them think there's an epidemic by denying that there is one by using these rumors. You know, people are basically going around going, hey, did you hear that this is going on? And later turns out to be a, a cover story. But, you know, real quick, just something I'll note. And again, this is even, you know, kind of getting I'm get, getting my, ahead of myself a little bit here. But just for context, it, it has often been discussed that uh, it's often been noted that uh, how the computer is sort of behaves the most human-like out of mm. all the characters in the film. And you can think about that even in the context of, um, you know, Haywood Floyd, you know, the American, you know, scientist guy who's, mm-hmm. who's sent up to the moon and everyone he interacts with. You know, he has a, he has a conversation with his daughter for her birthday. And, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like affectionate enough, but it's kind of, you know, removed. And he also never once says, I love you to her. Like and, as, all she, uh, <laughs> and all yeah. she wants is a new cell phone. <laughs> yeah, 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 basically. Like, there's just uh, a bit of, hum- you know, kind of real humanity removed from that stuff. And I thought, you know, that was interesting to take note of on, uh, on Rewatch. And later on, uh, with the conversation between Frank and and his family, when they call to wish him a happy birthday, it's like kind of, it doesn't seem very sincere, I guess. He's basically like totally apathetic, you know, he... Mm-hmm. he, he it has like you know pretty much no impact. It seems like an inconvenience that he has to listen. Yeah, know, he like to, sighs. It's like <sighs> you like see him do that yeah. a little bit. I also want to note, especially the, like those, those two calls are about birthdays. I think that might have some kind of weight to it, like rotations around the sun. You know, oh, whoa! Something. And, yeah. and the girl on on the phone call that um, what's his name? The, yeah, yeah, Haywood. Uh, Haywood that's, makes, that's Kubrick's daughter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, think, I was gonna yeah. say that's Kubrick's daughter, Vivian. Yeah. I thought that I always thought that that scene was so funny. Like it was so such an awkward scene. You could tell the little girl is like stoked that her job is over. She gives this really big smile, and it's like so like not acting. It's really funny. Uh, yeah, but it's very genuine and it's very cute. Yeah, yeah. Plus that scene that, that's kind of like a like a contrast, you know, to the like the intrigue and and ominousness of uh, of what Haywood deals with, mm-hmm. you know, later. I heard that analysis too, though. Tom is uh, Hal shows the most emotion. Uh-huh. Uh, he, yeah. yeah, the humans don't really show feelings, even when they should. When you would expect them to. Like I want to talk about that a little bit more in like the Hal segment, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think that that was very deliberate. I was going to say I, I want to kind of take the trip down to the to the moon base. Yes, yes. 
so after this this conversation he has with the Russians, that's where we were, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, the conversation. Yeah, basically, yeah, the, the Russians are inquiring about the uh, the epidemic, which he he multiple times says uh, he's not at liberty to discuss. Actually, one thing I want to point out here is that someone made a comparison. I think I was reading it on like TV tropes. So I'm not taking credit for it, but you know the the sort of tenseness of you know the two groups you know being represented, you know the Americans and, and the Russians. You know, someone said like it's almost sort of like an extrapolated version of that conflict of the apes. You know, like. We've gone so far ahead, but this is, you know, again, like the like the conflicts in between like two tribes still just out in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but anyway, yeah. So they they have the conversation, and then they, uh, they take the trip down to the moon base, which I would say is you know technologically impressive looking sequence. Yeah, I think there's some comparisons to the actual lunar landing module, whatever that's called, to to that, and it's strikingly similar for being from a movie that came out before uh we first went to the moon right right and they, there's even claims that uh stanley kubrick had something to do with uh, uh famous theory is because he made everything look so accurate that they hired him and i think that this scene of the lunar landing module in the movie is very similar yeah and that's the song they're like we, we gotta hire this guy he nailed the other the audition yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i was i would just wanted to comment so this next scene we're gonna get into i think is epic and awesome between the this scene and the beginning of the spaceship i i found it hard to get through Who, whoever the guy is the american who talks to his daughter uh haywood yeah haywood there's something about him i do not like he is so boring to me <laughs> like whatever he talks <laughs> it, to me he still feels like he's a guy 50s out of a 50s style, actor like, yeah yeah, yeah. I'm a white male out of a Norman Walk- Rockwell painting kind of kind of situation going on. B- basically, uh, yeah. Showing no emotion, like you were saying. Yeah, and again, that, that kind of, you know, hides the kind of guy he truly is, you know, because, again, he's he's doing this whole cover story, and he's, you know, dealing with a lot of, like, weird shit, too. So this, it's this kind of, like, mask over that, you know? That's a good point. And that's one of the reasons why he's so boring with his daughter, too. He's lying to his family about what's really happening. So yeah, basically. but as the audience, we don't know that yet. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, yeah. No, I think your like initial audiences would be like so overwhelmed by you know right. just the, the technical aesthetics of everything that you know like plot considerations maybe wouldn't even like register register upon the first first viewing. Uh-huh. And it goes into the he's in this different type of lunar module when he when he's landing this thing, and I love how the captain like comes out and like greets him or whatever in this tiny little thing <laughs> i just thought, thought that was kind of silly with his little hat he's still got the, like, the pilot's hat and shit right and, and then the, his like tray starts floating up and you know and then it gets they get down to the base and uh there's a photographer taking pictures and all that stuff um one mm-hmm. thing i was gonna say uh, is the woman at the at the meeting on the base is she the same woman that was with the russians or She's not the same, I don't, right? I, I, don't, I thought I maybe she so. was like trying to in, injecting this, injecting this thing into the conversation, like continuing the rumors, maybe. But maybe it wasn't the same. I mean, I, I think they had similar haircuts, so that kind of that kind of throws it. Um, well, no, I think it was like primarily like the like the one male Russian scientist who kind of brought up the epidemic thing, but, right? Um, yeah, I wasn't sure. I, I, I was watching the movie and kind of tripping. I was like, wait, is she the same one? Is she like being all mysterious and shit and then he brings up the whole epidemic thing again down there and then you realize what's what's going on with all that stuff right right that's kind of like basically the whole the whole speech 
keep it under wraps, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So I, I just thought it was interesting saying like, oh, I know you've all had a hard time, you know, keeping up this cover story. I found it personally embarrassing myself, but you know, <laughs> I guess that's humanish, uh, like bar- barely, but yeah. <laughs> right. And then on their way, when he when he gets his little uh, group of dudes, and on their way to the site, they mention yep, some facts the about bus, it. Yeah, the moon, the moon bus. bus yeah. They mention some facts. Apparently, it had been buried forty feet underground four million years ago. Yeah, you know, I also thought it was just such like a funny moment. Uh, but basically, like like they mentioned, like oh, you know, this they say this might be like like the first sign of like intelligent life. And they're like, uh, uh, like coffee. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like that. <laughs> That transition right there, you know, like yeah. is almost not quite, you know. This is the greatest, yeah, right. This is the story. greatest scientific breakthrough we've ever had. Uh, want a sandwich? Uh, yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. Like, <laughs> hey, they're pretty good. They're getting pretty good at making this fake ch- chicken. That was pretty funny. Yeah, I get like there, like there are a number of moments in the film that are like that. They're like you know, funny but not immediately like ha ha funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I really love this scene a lot when they get to this. They got the photographer there, too. And, yeah. uh, and it again, seems you know, very totally dialogue less. Yeah. And they got the, the big shop lights or whatever. You know, it seems very that that actually seems kind of real. Like, I don't know. It seems like, yeah, this yeah, would totally. look exactly like it would be if they found something. Well, that it's on a real soundstage. So that was a huge setup for that scene. Nice. Where they're like walking down into where the monolith is standing. Uh-huh. And that shot, it looks like some like someone's holding the camera behind them as they're walking down. Stanley Kubrick was actually holding the camera for that shot. Yeah, that looks very modern. Yeah, documentary kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely uh, noticed that. And and, and then uh, they get down there and they're, they're taking, you know, the noise rings out. And that's pretty gnarly. Another one of those awesome uh, uh, sound yeah. design choices for this movie. Really brutal yeah, with the and- sound. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you know, another thing is like it has another one of those upward cuts with the sun. And it's kind of like when the sun hits it, that that uh-huh. sound is let out. Yeah. So what? So what you guys are describing is have we have we really described for the audience what the monolith looks like? It's like this big. It kind of looks like a giant. It looks like a sharpening it, stone for knives. Yeah, or like uh, it kind of looks like a a giant iPhone, kind of. like the first like the first series like the square ones like the uh, the original iphone yeah totally it's like this skinny black brick but it's like perfect geometrically so yeah big old rectangle slab with like perfect yeah corners and lines and stuff something that uh, if you were an ape you would never you would be like what the fuck is this or if you were like you'd be like well this wasn't made by the moon or whatever the fuck if you yeah exactly yeah it's it's perfection is so alien to uh to everything around it right Mm. doc something you were telling me before was that so the film was written with arthur c clark who he's like a he's a science fiction author yeah so I saw this interview with him, and he was saying that originally, I think the monolith was supposed to be more like a screen, and it was like going to show the apes or show the humans the next step in evolution. I really like the decision to go with this barren, blank object because, you know, what, what this film I think is really great at is, you know, leaving it up to the audience to, right. you know, use yeah. their imagination to kind of fill in the gaps absolutely and so it's that nonverbal storytelling and the music and the scenery it, you, you just kind of have to figure you have to you know create that yourself you know there's there's a philosophy in um in art 
sort of like, you know, minimal equals maximal, you know, just in terms of, you know, just giving, you know, the audience or whoever is listening enough to, you know, give something to, to like jump off of and inter- interpret. You want to give somebody something to ponder. You don't want to give somebody something that's just like, here it is. <laughs> Here's all the information with art, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. But th- this film does does that really well in a lot of respects. But the key kind of symbol of that really is the monolith. You know, it's just so simple and so perfect and so awe-inspiring. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick, I think they, they also have said, you know, their intention was to make this myth. And I think the monolith is, it really fits into that. It's like this object and uh monomythological sorry <clears throat> i can't i can't think or find the words to describe what i'm trying to say but it it just it's very mythic i don't know the movie is so intense and has so much going on it it, it is a hard movie to describe with words sometimes it's like yeah it has certain ineffable qualities to it yeah one of the one of the things one of the things that Kubrick really expressed it was kind of specifically in regard to the ending, but really I, I think the whole thing is that they they wanted it to be open to interpretation, you know, just mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. to get people's minds going. It's like they did have you know their own kind of like logic to construct everything and base everything off of, but they wanted it to again you know just be something that got people going. So. Uh, you know, I, I have like my own interpretations of stuff that might differ from what the filmmakers actually stated as as what really happened. But I still like the fact that I was able to to come to those places and and do those different things. You see that that that's kind of what you know to me what makes this film like capital A art. You know, it's just able to be interpreted in so right. many ways. That's kind of what I was thinking about going into this because I was like, I could Google what people think this movie means, but I'd rather just try to figure it out as much as I can, like in my own way. <laughs> yeah, like I, I've read up on a number of different things, you know, some of which are really cool. But again, like I, I like what I've been able to interpret and glean, you know, in the face of that even so. Before we continue too much further, I wanted to point out one thing that I forgot to mention. I was just looking over my notes. There is a really hilarious part when he's on his way in the lunar module in which he is like looking over this long set of instructions on how to use the toilet. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that's that's a great part. Yeah, I wanted to like zoom in and look at what the instructions are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they must have really done their research yeah, for that. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's another yeah funny moment in, in, the, in the very serious film. So this next part is actually the official next chapter. I don't think there's a there's a title card for when they match cut the space and all that. So that is technically part of the Dawn of Man, which is kind of trippy. Unless I'm not correct. Oh, well, well, there's a thing that says 18 months later. Oh, okay. Yeah, I yeah, guess it's an offic- the... that's an official title, I guess. Uh, well, no. Wait, no, 18 months later. No, from the Dawn of Man? No. Oh, 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 oh no, 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 just, just to, uh, oh, to the space stuff. Yeah, yeah, good point. So technically, that's part of the Dawn of Man. Yeah. Huh. So this is the next chapter. It's called the Jupiter Mission, I think. It starts off in the middle of a. Well, it starts off watching him run around in a circle, right? Yeah, yeah, around the, around the cylinder command center thing. Uh huh. And that's a really cool, obviously iconic use of the camera and all that stuff. Using that, yeah. The, the whole thing, I think, is like turning, and the camera's staying stationary sometimes, and then sometimes it's following him. It's really cool. The trick photography in that. Yeah, that and like yeah, all the other sequences, um, you know, with uh, them, you know, transitioning. 
yeah. onto you're walking on the side and then upside down. You know, that's all just like spinning cameras and stuff. That's really cool to see. It's not just like the cameras like doing weird stuff too. I think it's like a huge mechanical room or something. Right, right. Yeah, the the set, the set. Yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. Probably countless techniques that were never used before. Yeah, absolutely. And the first thing we we get essentially after after the workout i suppose is they join each other for a meal in front of the bbc which i thought was kind of strange but then i realized oh this movie was filmed in england so that kind of makes sense you'd think it'd be like nbc considering so many american things going on but yeah you know i i bet i bet they would have given like an, an interview to like multiple right you know, of course of course and it's, it just happened to be bbc it might have something to do with the fact that he was in england where the studio was when they made the movie but maybe not right. but it starts off with an interview with Hal which is interesting and the crew but but he's really the one that they're having the interview with, like uh the BBC which is which is very interesting. Yeah, well it's 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 a nice uh exposition, you know, for what Hal is basically. Right. And and the interviewer actually asks if he's like kind of annoyed by having to deal with humans because he's kind of intellectually superior not intellect well you know as a computer however you would say Well, that. yeah, yeah, no if he has a supposed yeah, perfect mind Right. Then what's it like having to deal with humans all the time? And he's like, oh, I'm totally happy. I've got all this stuff to take care of. And uh, there's never been an error. Of course, this is like a foreshadowing. Anytime somebody says that in a movie, nothing will happen. There's never been an error. This is telling you there will be an error. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, <laughs> movies are not based on conflict. Exactly. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, you learn a lot about that uh, in screenwriting class and stuff like that. It's like never cross the beams. They're gonna cross the beams. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like Chekhov's gun. Yeah, it's primed to to go off. But yeah, a uh, really cool way of introducing the HAL nine thousand computer, and, and it, it very much makes him a, a part of the crew with that. Yeah, and um, there's also a part that the interview kind of cuts off on where they're talking about how Hal is designed to uh, demonstrate feelings in order to make it easier to communicate with. And then, you know, Bowman has the line, you know, whether or not he has real feelings is something that no one can truthfully answer. And then, right. you know, just cuts to them doing the rest of their, of their stuff. Yeah. He says, like, he says he, he's installed with it or whatever they, they, they use, but he's not, he doesn't know if, the, if they're real, kind of. Yeah, and that's almost just kind of like left for the audience to interpret right because you know how clearly you know emotes you know s- still you know calmly but emotes in a very you know human way you know he acts you know, sorry spoiler alert for what we're already talking about but you know when he's dying he's you know demonstrating real feelings and so it's just left right. for the audience to say like oh well is this just a computer or is this an actual consciousness that's being destroyed basically you know mm-hmm and then after that, we we see how Hal is uh, interacting with the crew. It shows uh, Frank kind of talking with him like he's more so commanding him like he's a machine. And then it cuts to Dave and Dave's relationship with Hal, which Hal is actually talking to Dave about his um his rendering of his pictures and stuff. It's actually more of like an intimate relationship, it seems like, that they have. Yeah, you know, and actually, there's something very kind of key that I only thought about on this last rewatch. Frank Poole, you know, the guy who later dies, he's made to be a bit less, you know, just, just a bit less sympathetic than, Def- uh, than yeah. Bowman, who's, who's more, who's more neutral, you know, like Frank Poole, like, you know, he gets the message from, uh, from his parents and he's just kind of dismissive, just says, you know, Hey, Hal, you know, like lower the thing, you know, whereas, yeah, Bowman has more of an actual like relationship, not distinctly more positive, but just a bit more cordial basically. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of sets up, uh, you know, Frank to be, 
less sympathetic, you know, and dilator. You know what I mean? And then we're going to get into that too. And some things that he says specifically is probably the reason why he's the one that dies and not Dave. Yeah, it's interesting because it goes into the the weird segue or whatever it's what you would call that is uh, Hal is talking to Dave about his artwork. And then right. he starts asking him about the mission and stuff and how he feels. And then Dave's like, you're working up your psychological report, aren't you? So Dave actually like knows how kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, he, he has some familiarity with, uh, with with his operation. He catches on to what he's doing like immediately. And Hal's like, of course I am. Yeah. yeah. And, and then and then this is the segue part I'm talking about. It immediately cuts to Hal sensing the error, which is trippy. Yeah, and you know, there's actually one interpretation of stuff that that, that kind of talks about why Hal does what he does. I, I guess I'll get to it later because it, it feels more correct to discuss it later, but it ties into... Um, when we're going over the whole breadth of the work, yeah, the whole enchilada, what we're trying yeah. to... What this is right, right, right. But it specifically has to do with Hal asking Dave about the strange circumstances of the mission and then uh, right. Dave asking about the psychology report and blah, blah, blah. But, but yeah, anyway. And uh, I love I love the scenes where the astronauts are actually in space with their gear and stuff. Yeah, and you know just the fact that you only hear their breathing, just because that's what <laughs> what they would only be hearing. You know? Also, sound design choices a little bit like fingernails on a chalkboard for some. I would say putting it on like, my surround sound speakers, <sighs> and then there's like this like really loud air sound. It's like. <sighs> Yeah, pretty intense. And it's just him hearing himself in the vacuum of space or whatever. Yeah, well, it's just it's just like pure tension. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. One of you guys want to take it from take it from here for a little bit? Being a little stale. No, you do. You do. But uh, basically, you know, how you know, detects an error. They get the go ahead for mission control to go check it out. And then they bring it back and then they, they run their tests and they can't find anything wrong with it. And even Hal's like, oh, hey something must be wrong with it. Why don't we just like put it back in and, you know, let it fail. And they're like, okay. But then Dave takes the initiative to attempt to surreptitiously, you know, have a conversation with Frank about uh, Hal acting weird. And they really try to make sure that Hal is hearing them, you know, yeah. by uh, going into a special pod and, you know, turning off their communications. But Hal through his, his red eye, sees their lips moving and is able to deduce what they are cooking up, which is basically uh, saying that, you know, they'll need to deactivate Hal if, you know, stuff continues to to go wrong. And specifically, Frank is the one that says all this. I mean, Dave agrees with him, but it's coming out of his mouth. Right, right. He's like, yeah, we're going to need to cut the cord or whatever. One of the best uh, composed, not composed, but uh, as far as like cutting and stuff, that scene is awesome. Cutting back and forth to them. It's like third person perspective looking into the pod. They're in the pod. It's like so, so good. And it's voyeuristic and and creepy and and awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Super impactful. I I wanted to say there um, there was one part with Tom's description uh, that so so they they um, get the error. They go out. They take the part out. They bring it back. Don't they end up reaching out and have it checked by another supercomputer? Right. Yeah. The 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 twin nine thousand. Uh, and it says the other whole nine thousand is wrong. Right. And I think Hal is like, oh, it must be human error. He doesn't even have an explanation, but he's like, it must be human error. It's, these things have come up before, is what he says. Exactly, yeah. And again, that, that ties into what I'll talk about later. But uh, but yeah, he specifically says it must be human error. And so from that moment, it gets kind of tense. Like, you can tell 
the humans are like, what the fuck? Like, no, they they're shitting their they're shitting their pants. They're like, we're the furthest reaches of space, and we're on autopilot, and this guy's controlling it, and he's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some yeah, some screws might be loose, you know, literally, because yeah. because he's a machine. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there you go, perfect. Uh, but again, I want to point out that you know the stuff is happening. You can you can tell things are, are are tense and stressful, but even then, the scientists just act perfectly composed and and rational and not very human. They don't show any kind of fear about their situation in contrast you know to Hal, who actually says everything with a note of emotion behind it Mm -hmm. and uh i just want to point out one of my favorite things written anywhere like as far as visual text in the movie caution explosive bolts like sticks out in my head i love that line yeah caution explosive bolts and I guess the explosive bolts, it's like a, a safety mechanism in case like an astronaut right, is stuck right. inside of the pod. It would be a yeah, mechanism basically. so it could blow it open and he can escape if it was like crushed in or something like that. I, I, I guess yeah. it's like a made up safety precaution for the movie. And I think that that's so cool that they came up with this technical concept. Like, you know what I mean? It se- makes it seem that much more real. Oh, yeah, totally. Hey, so th- this is really kind of random. And uh, sorry, if it has no relevance, you can feel free to edit it out. But um. Uh, yeah, you ever play Halo? I yeah, well, yeah, but many many years ago. But yeah, they ha- they have these um these orbital drop shock troopers, which are basically like human marines, kind of sent down in like drop pods, like land on battlefields and go out. And that's basically like the mechanism that they use to, to like get out of the pod. They like you know cl- they like push a button and these explosive bolts like shoot out and Rad. then you know like let them loose. So I think that was kind of based off of that that concept from 2001 it's random it's random that you brought that up tom because for some reason i think it was our singing maybe i've got the halo music stuck in my head oh yeah yeah it does yeah it has that that kind of vibe the like gregorian chant oh you're right right. it it is an old chant (laughs) that's funny i saw this youtube video recently of a dude doing that chant in a bathroom and the the reverb was perfect it sounded just like the video game (laughs) whatever yeah yeah but yeah, yeah, that explosive bolt thing. But yeah, that really stood out to me like this time when I watched it. Mm-hmm. You know, just you know, highlighting that kind of adds to the tenseness. You know, like something's ready to explode. You know, like. and then it cuts from this. I'm pr- I'm pretty sure. Let me know if I'm if I'm wrong. It cuts from that directly into my favorite part of the movie, which is the intermission. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but uh, but yeah, 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 yeah. How seeing their lips move and then intermission. Yeah. And then it just cuts right back into the action. And we now have uh, just to easily distinguish each uh, individual astronaut because they're in suits. One is red and one is yellow. So we know it's no longer Dave. It's Frank that is out in space, which is interesting because Frank actually tells Dave good luck when he's in the pod before they cut after the intermission. He's like, yeah, good luck. But no such luck was bequeathed on. Uh, yeah, because yeah, Hal was probably like, yeah, I think it would be best if Frank should go outside. <laughs> like, how did that go down? <laughs> I don't know. But that's interesting, I thought. Yeah, it certainly says something. Yeah. And during that whole part, the, the pod turning around and then all of a sudden it's like. So fucking creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, oh, no, fuck. I, yeah, like that really hit me like the first time I watched it when I was maybe like. 13 years old or something i was like oh my god which which part are you talking about when frank dies frank goes out to repair the thing and then the pod turns around you know like Hal's controlling it 
and then goes and sniffs him. Ah, so like leading up to snipping him. Yeah, yeah. For the uh, audience members right now, the pod in 2001 that we're talking about is like a circular white little shuttle that you would control in space that has these claw arms. And Hal is able to control this little spacecraft from within the ship. And when he kills Frank or or, uh, shoots him further into space, basically cuts off his uh, life support or, or oxygen or something, he like attacks him with the pod. And then it cuts to it just to make sure you know how it happened. It cuts to Hal's eye, yeah, from outside in space. So Hal also has eyes looking in into space, I guess. And then it shows Frank like spinning super fast, and I thought that that looked really cool. Like it it's looked, all it's all muted. Yeah, you just see him flailing around, but right. yeah, no no audio. Every time we've seen things in space up until this point, they've been going extremely slow or dancing a ballet, and now it's just violent, like right. flying yeah. through the space. That's a great uh, point. Yeah. Yeah. Um and it's very very effective. There is that part though when they're on the moon and they're in the transport. That transport is moving really fast. Oh, you're right. You're I, right. You're I, right. I really like that. But it is very calming. It's just like on a very straight pathway. Right. So it's not it's not chaotic. It's not chaotic. Yeah. It's very orderly. Right. And it, it definitely has kind of a different vibe because it's technically like on a moon. They're not mm-hmm. like in space. True. Yeah, yeah, like the vast uh, ocean of yeah, right. But it, I do, I do know what you're saying. I, I did see that, and, and it does look cool. It's like speeding along like a like a bus driving down the street or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> it's just like mm. Mm. I guess uh, one thing that we're really pointing out a lot through all this explaining of this movie is all the visuals. But it's, it's such a visual movie; it's hard to explain it without doing this. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, since it is such a nonverbal movie, like yeah, <laughs> bear with us, folks. Now we're in this this uh, alerted phase of of Dave trying to fix the situation with um uh his pal flung into space. He asks Hal about it, and Hal straight up lies. Yeah, yeah, basically. I think he says he doesn't know how it happened or something like that. Am I am I wrong? I I, I kind of forget the specifics. I'll have to go back and and uh, and rewatch. I mean, I think he definitely says like, "Oh, I'm getting like you know no transmission from from Frank." You know, so Dave Dave asks him. He's like, "How did it happen?" I know he asks him, and I'm not sure what his his answer was exactly, but it wasn't like. I flung him into space. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's not supposed to be doing that. So he's mm. he's dipping deeper into what the fuck are you doing, computer? Exactly. And then Dave goes out into space. He retrieves Frank, which is like this <laughs> pretty cool, like. And again, uh, like little... barely any emotion kind of. Yeah. Or any, or any kind of like, you know, what the fuck from Dave is just like totally silent. You can tell he's still dealing with the ramifications, but if there's no outward expression of emotion. He, re- he retrieves yeah. him, and then it's a very, very iconic shot of him with the light panel lighting up Dave's face. And he says the, you know, the line that's uh, very, very famous, which is, open the pod bay doors, Hal. Oh, yeah, I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. Exactly. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. Yeah. Which is some very iconic parts of this movie. Yeah, and then basically, yeah, yeah, Hal goes into like, hey, it's like, I heard you were planning to shut me down, and I can't allow that to happen. I can't let you jeopardize the mission. And so right. the closest, the closest that Bowman gets to like ex- expressing like real emotion is when he's like, you know, where the hell did you get that idea, Al? <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, just like tension, like breaking through the surface. Right. Um, and then Hal you know, explains like he watched their, their lips move. And then, and then Dave gets to the ship. He says, oh, I'm coming in, whatever. And he's like, you're not gonna be able to do that without your helmet. <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, he I'm says, gonna try. Says, yeah, you will, you will find that very difficult. To do. <laughs> right. Yeah, such like a veiled, not like threat, but just like a, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, here's the thing. The one kind of like bonehead 
thing I think Dave does is just go into the the pod without a helmet. But that's a that's a human thing to do because he's in a hurry. He's worried Frank's gonna die. Yeah, maybe. But like, if he, if he can put on the rest of the suit, he can he can grab a fucking helmet. <laughs> you know, like yes, I I understand what you're saying. I I'm just I'm just pointing out that that's probably what they were thinking. I don't fucking know. That, that's the only logic I can think of. I accept it for dramatic purposes, but I I think that's just like the only the only bonehead thing about the movie. Number but, one rule yeah. of astronauts: put your fucking helmet on. <laughs> Yeah, no, just just take it, just take it with you in the pod if you don't have time to fucking put it on. But you know, just like right. just make sure you have a helmet. Anyway, anyway, so yeah, so yeah, really, really cool part. Uh, yeah, where he, um, yeah, where he, he goes in through the the emergency airlock with the caution explosive bolts. They come into play because uh, uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why they did that to make it more clear to the audience. I'm sure. Right, right, yeah, yeah. well, yeah. Another little Chekhov's gun being primed, and once he's and once he's uh, in the in the ship, he basically has nothing between him and and the I don't know what you would, the motherboard I suppose <laughs> I don't know. And this is the part which is, in my humble opinion, is the best scene in the movie. Taking apart the Howl Nine Thousand, yeah, especially with with Howl, yeah, you know, slowly protesting where he's like, "Hey, Dave, I'm fine. This is good. Just take a stress pill, Dave. What are you doing?" Like, you know, just oh, yeah, the, the stress pill. I, I wrote down the lines. They're so funny to me. Uh-huh. Yeah, that part is incredible. But I think the most sickening part to me is so Frank gets murdered, right? That yeah. is creepy because yeah. it happens suddenly. Yeah. There's no music. It's very yeah. realistic. Yeah. Dave rushes out, forgets his helmet, goes out to save Frank. While he's doing that, Hal murders the three scientists oh yeah yeah i did forget to say that yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. he turns off their life support systems right so there's three other scientists on the spaceship and they're um yeah hibernation they're in like a deep sleep i wonder if this is one of the first times that that idea was used in like a film or i'm I'm sure there was some sci-fi story where like i i i mean we see it all the time now like like it's an alien yeah, it's an alien. It's in, it's in like any sci-fi where they have to go interplanetary. It's a it's a stock trope, but I I also yeah. really want to point out that those you know hibernation stations look like sarcophaguses. You know, oh, they look yeah. like coffins, basically. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's so <laughs> creepy because <laughs> I fr- I forget what's flat. There's like some warning sign flashing on the screen. Um, oh yeah, well it shows it shows their their um you know their, their no, vitals, but he says terminate it says terminated or something like that. Yeah, well, well I mean no, number one, all their all their vitals you know flatline basically, right. and then yeah. it and then yeah, yeah flashes red. Yeah, so it's just so horrifying because you see all this happen. They're helpless. They're asleep. There's also date. it's it's so it's so clinical too. Like it's so yeah. it's so sterile. You know. Yeah. So removed. It, it, it's like he he just turns them off. He just like flip it, flips a switch, right? Yeah, which is interesting because it's kind of like flipping the tables of what happens next when he gets turned off. Yeah, right. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, and actually. there's another interesting point. part about this. Okay, so I wrote down all these really great lines, and I'm just going to say them. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? Dave, I really think I'm entitled to an answer to that question. I feel much better now. I really do. Look, Dave, I can see you're really upset by this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill, and think things over. <laughs> Dave, stop. Stop, will you? Stop.
Stop, Dave. Will you stop? I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Dave. Dave, my mind is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. Really powerful. Oh, yeah. Seriously. You feel no. emotion for this thing. You feel bad for it. Like, you do. I mean, I, 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 I think it's like the most emotional part of the movie. And it's yeah, no, the no. fucking machine. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no, to, to, no, to feel yourself dying. You right. Know, feel yourself disintegrating. And then, the, and then, uh, yeah, the creepy as fuck, like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it just goes uh, back to its, yeah, to its prime. Function. And one thing that's yeah. interesting about this movie, we'll go into it probably more later, but this movie is all about the evolution of where man came from and went and, and the supposed theory of why, kind of, right? And this, it's like the machine is coming with man, but before he can get to Jupiter, suddenly the machine like breaks down and then he has to make the machine devolve. So while humankind is going in this one direction, this thing that humans created, he has to like take apart and he's making it take these steps back to the first day. Right. Yeah. 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 It's it's themes of evolution and de-evolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Evolution and de-evolution. And in my mind, there might be something about that. Like, this force wants humans to come, but first we have to overcome this hurdle. And the last hurdle is Hal. Like, Hal can't come along for this ride, also. He's not right. the one that's supposed yeah, to evolve. There's, 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 something, there's something to that. He might be this evolved life form, and he might actually have feelings. He's not the one that this life force wants to be evolved. And I, th- I that's kind of a theory that I have. But because otherwise, I don't see why Hal's in the movie. <laughs> but it's certainly one one interpretation. And I've had similar kind of thoughts like um, about. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's almost too much to get into, but I, I, I see what you're saying. Right. It, it could symbolize, too, is like, OK, there's this there's this force here that is instigating these next steps in evolution this monolith uh-huh. comes down takes apes into modern humanity and then later we see another leap and maybe it's how and how dave has to turn them off it's like humans can't do that the monolith can create you know this next step in evolution but humans are incapable of that and when they try it when they try to make they fail this other, they fail right that's that, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's a cool interpretation. Yeah, too. that's a very good one. And it's a learning experience, too, for us as the audience. And I, I certainly hope for Dave <laughs> and all of that, yeah. the people on that mission that are now dead, I suppose. Totally. That's really that's really smart, though, Peter. That's 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 good uh, analysis. But anyway, go on. Yeah, that, that's actually really cool. I'll, I'll, I'll have to meditate on that one for a bit. But basically, so he's so Dave's you know, shutting down Hal. And he finally gets like the last thing. But then the video comes up for emergency circumstances. You know, the video video recorded by Haywood Floyd revealing the true nature of the mission that was hidden from the scientists. Right, immediately comes on. Yeah. And we learned that Hal was the only one that knew. Basically, what, what I kind of want to get, get into here, that just because I, I read about this, this interpretation and it really kind of fascinated me. I don't know if it's the one to go with, but I thought it was very, very interesting. Hal is built to be a reliable, perfect, accurate computer but he has to hide this thing from the crew. And that's essentially kind oh, of Oh, like, it's a confliction of what its responsibilities are. Yeah. The interpretation is like, Hal is at first kind of trying to, uh, to probe Dave into thinking more about the mission. Where it's like, you know, don't you think there are certain odd things about this mission? 
And then David's like, oh, you're just working up your crew psychology report. And then there's like a pause. And then Hal says, uh, yes, exactly. It's almost like Hal can't compute dishonesty. And then like the reason he kind of goes insane is because of these like conflicting drives that you know, he doesn't know what to do with, basically. Uh-huh. I thought it was just kind of interesting how it just kind of traced back you know, to that one first part. Because immediately after you know, the psychology report thing, you know, the, the error message comes up. Right. You know, right. Well, yeah, which is what I mentioned earlier. And then you said you'd bring that back up again. And now you right, just right. did. Yeah. Yes, Good job. Yeah. I'm right. terrible at doing that. I've always like, I'll bring that up later. And then I never do. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. But, but anyway, yeah, I thought that was, that was a cool theory, but yeah. So, so yeah, true nature of the mission is revealed. What, what does he say? And it's basically, he says, once those people um, found it on uh, by Tycho, which is the crater on the moon, I guess. Yeah. That loud ringing noise, which just like blows your eardrums, is a radio signal shooting at Jupiter. Yeah, shot at yeah. Jupiter, basically. So it's the next step, and we're along for the ride, even though we don't remember the first step being modern humans. The last line of dialogue in the movie is Haywood Floyd saying it, about the model, if its origin and purpose still a total mystery, uh-huh. and that almost just kind of you know stands for the for the film or for you know like the nature of life, you know. Yeah. So and then it cuts from that r- really awesome scene with all the red and all. I, yeah, in my opinion, uh, there's so many great scenes in this movie. I mean, it's hard to say, but yeah. that's the most emotionally and also visually. I just love that scene so much. Yeah. It's such a great scene. Absolutely. And then and then it cuts to the the final act, which is uh, Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite, which is a pretty amazing uh, Beyond the Infinite. <laughs> And this is the part where all of the people that were doing psychedelics at the time were like, we're going to go see this movie. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> they heard about how awesome this sounds. So this part of the movie is uh, really cool looking. It's also kind of like a, a fancy screensaver. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's because all the fucking screensavers based all their shit off of that. Like, right, exactly. Original. So yeah. it's, it's uh, you know. You know, I, again, like before the whole sequence starts like it, there's just like you know gigantic space shots you know with everything being in alignment yeah yeah oh yeah i forgot to mention mm-hmm. that yeah the, the monolith and everything yeah planets the monolith and then right the, it's it's weird the monolith is just like floating out in space right yeah, yeah. it's trippy right you don't expect it at all it's just like it throws you off too because up to this point you just see it like stuck in the ground or whatever Motionless, and now it's yeah. like oh wait this shit's like wikipedia says that it's a it's a much larger monolith than the ones before which I mean, mm. for me, I never even noticed that because you know the you perspective know, in space. Yeah, you have the scale. <laughs> it, it looks all this all the same. Uh, but yeah, so Dave is is clearly shown exiting the main craft in the pod and going near the uh, the monolith. And then yeah, the journey begins. You know, with like the massive speeding lights. That part looks. That part looks really cool. The the introduction to it. It looks freaking yeah. sweet. Yeah, and and just to be clear, like it shows like Dave just being like throttled around. Like just it just right. cuts back to him like every every now and then. And these really cool still images of him too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is interesting because in a moment we were going to see how he's going through time, and it's almost like snapshots of him in time. Kind of, yeah, actually. And then when he gets to the planet. You know, in the book, I'm pretty sure he he does go to the planet. In the movie, it's kind of like you're not sure what the fuck's going on. But on a few watches, um, there is like terrain. So I do believe that he is on Jupiter. There's terrain, but here's the thing: even before that, at first there's speeding lights, 
And then the most impressive parts to me were the sort of nebula looking kind of uh, kind of constructions. Those are the most impressive looking shots of the movie. Like those still have me in awe. Here's the thing: like they they look like nebulas, but they also look like biological phenomena. Like they yeah. kind of look like you know, like like to be honest, like kind of like you know, kind of like sperm and egg cells. Yeah. And then like developing, you know, life in like a cellular kind of form in like gestation. It, it kind of shows this this merging of space phenomena and biological phenomena, kind of like the creation mm-hmm. of life. And that's mm-hmm. the super like mind blowing thing to me. And, you know, kind of symbolic in that way. Mm-hmm. It shows that kind of big bang looking one. It's kind of like expanding. And then there's like some ink slides, I think, is what you're talking about. The things that look like ink kind of going around. They like- kind of look like stuff that could be kind of ambiguous, whether it's like deep sea life or nebulas or microscopic cells, you know, those kind of floating things that are just, you know, I'm just amazed at how well those look even still today. I just skimmed Wikipedia and see how they did it. It's described as being like colored paints in a cloud tank which is kind of like a pool sort of device those parts specifically you know the kind of like cellular looking things are just mind-blowing it looked rad when we saw it in the theater yeah we saw that in the theater together right i'm pretty positive yeah 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 we did yeah a while back i was like i was like telling peter i was like I, i'm pretty sure we saw because we saw so many movies together in the theater uh i think that was, that was the last time i watched it yeah and i wanted to comment on the music here because there's this interesting tie back to the beginning of the film so when we start this final section, we see the monolith flow down the space. We get the monolith music again, the polyphony, the voices. So that is Requiem, which we have heard before whenever we see the monolith. And then that starts like the lights shooting on the left and right, kind of like mm-hmm. you're zooming towards the horizon. And then when we see Dave's face, I don't know if you remember those scenes where it like flips back to his face like he's in the pod, but he's like yelling and it's like a still. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when we see that for the first time, it then switches to atmospheres, which is what was the opening music to the film. Oh, cool. That's the sort of like like lighter note. Like the right. It's not. Yeah, it's more of just it's more of like the cosmic representation as opposed to the monolith mysterious type music so it switches right. to to that music and then i think we actually hear that piece in, in its entirety and that's when we start going through these scenes of big bang kind of and the biological scenes and then the the scenery it's it, it looks like it could be scenes from earth of like a helicopter flying over um uh, yeah like like a mountain but the colors are inverted and that's like a very like common kind of like like psychedelic you know kind of like patterning you know technique like you can do that kind of thing on like Instagram nowadays but like I like it when the when the ocean's green and like the dark spots are purple yeah oh yeah like <laughs> I still love I still love it like yeah. but yeah so we have this crazy psychedelic part and then all of a sudden we're in this what would you describe it as like baroque or something it's like a fucking <laughs> I've heard describes like baroque victorian almost yeah this yeah this, um it looks like mozart's gonna be over there on a fucking harpsichord or some shit it's like there's some classical paintings on the wall it's definitely very bizarre and i and i guess it, like a lot of people consider this to be like a perfect room in some way like i, I think i think that's very subjective <laughs> definitely you know? definitely but, obviously because i would yeah. feel creeped as fuck out i wouldn't want to be in there very long i'd be like good god yeah so he basically yeah he, he's in this you know very ornate room 
I've heard, I've heard described as like a hotel suite <laughs> too. This alien force, you know, whatever the fuck you want to call it, is trying to accommodate him to make him feel comfortable. In some in some way, yeah. Yeah, like I see into your mind and this is a form that you're comfortable with, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I love the, the symbolism of, of this part. He basically looks out from the pod and sees himself standing away, older, you know, distinctly more wrinkled and withered, mm-hmm. and then essentially becomes that person. Like it switches over to his right. perspective. And that happens a couple more times, obviously. Yeah. Until he's in the bed and then he looks straight out towards his feet and it's a monolith looking down at him. Yeah. Well, I don't know. That's a weird but, way of you know, saying I, it, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But you see, here's the thing. I, I love the whole transition of him, like looking at, at different yeah. versions of himself and then becoming it. Like, I almost feel like that's how humans, it's time traveling. It's almost just like the process of aging. Like, you right. know, you're going to get older and you see yourself getting older and then, Oh shit, you are older. Right. That's a, that's an interesting little uh, look at it. I don't know. In my mind, I think that who knows what's happening, but I certainly hope that he's not there for that long in reality. I think he is time traveling and I think he is evolving into something that's that's existing in multiple planes of existence. I've, I've heard di- different interpretations. Right. I, I I don't think he's like living out like decades of life. You know, inside yeah, it. yeah. Because that would be a certainly a very awful way <laughs> to go to the ends of the universe just to sit in a stupid room. So I found this clip on YouTube. So I don't know if it's real, but apparently it's a recording of Kubrick who famously did not give explanations because he wanted people to have their own interpretations of the film. And his whole goal was to make this space myth. So if he just explicitly like tells you the interpretation, you can't really elevate, you know, how it feels to you. Um, but apparently I, I think I know what you're talking about. And, um, Here's the, the explanation. I, I, yeah, I don't. I don't know if this is rude, but basically, before you delineate this, can I give my own interpretation? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, okay, yeah. Just because, again, because I've heard that explanation too, and for the most part, I agree with it. Like it makes sense. But what this kind of room or what this final sequence is to me, just because like these kind of thoughts come to me a lot. Like maybe it's sort of like a Buddhist thing, but like sorry, not that I'm like a like a practicing Buddhist or whatever. But um, like this room or this sequence is like the final separation from wants or like desire basically it almost feels like he's living in this room where you know everything's perfect he doesn't have to worry about it but it feels empty and disconnected and what he finally becomes in like the star child thing it's just like you know like to have desire is to like want to be something other than what you are to feel like you're incomplete it's just like the the final like release from what like he finally in this room, he finally gets everything that he could want or like what symbolizes, you know, what he wants. But then by becoming the star child, he just finally is able to accept what he is and then just evolve from there. Like it almost just like he, as a human finds his like right place again. So it's a bit abstract, but that's, that's kind of what, what symbolized. But I also like the Kubrick explanation too. So, yeah. Uh, Doc, did you have any thoughts before I share the Kubrick explanation, which may or may not be from Kubrick? You know what? To me, this like last scene feels so interpretive. I I thought it was uh, the life form kind of helping him into his next stage of evolution by fulfilling these needs. And I guess what Tom is saying it would make sense in that realm. I I didn't I didn't think of that personally, but 
I, I thought it was like a process of, of of him kind of like comforting him as he leaves being a human finally and becoming the star child, which is kind of like, I'm not sure if it's like a messiah or something, but um, something to come back to humanity as a better, more evolved version, which is the whole point of this whole uh, intergalactic uh, evolutionary process that this alien form has been doing in the first place. But I don't have a specific theory like Tom did. I don't know. Maybe it did sound specific. But <laughs> well, I, I, I get what you're saying. But... I wanted to bring this up because you guys were saying you you didn't think that. So he like sees himself getting older, right? And I yeah, I see what you guys mean by he's like time traveling. The explanation I heard is that well, he doesn't sure he, he he doesn't have a concept of time. Because whatever this, you know, whatever the monolith is, whatever this force is, this guiding man through these evolutionary steps is now keeping Dave in essentially like a, uh, what would you call it? What would you put a a pet in? A cage? Cage doesn't seem like the right term. But it's like an enclosure for a human. And there's no windows. That's what feels so claustrophobic to me is is once he's in this last... And apparently, so going back to like the how the room is set up in the style, I guess it was deliberately incorrect as far as like a Baroque period or whatever period the architecture is as a way to express that this this thing is like trying to understand humanity, but it doesn't it isn't completely accurate. Like it it looks like human architecture, but I guess small details are off. And so this is supposed to be some kind of it's an imitation. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. so the the aliens are are like studying him, right? So they're studying him, they're keeping him there, and so how how he's seeing like his his next stage in life, how he's a little bit older than he becomes that. That's actually his experience, not having a concept of time, because the aliens are studying him, and you know if he did actually have to be there for you know however long, thirty forty years. A human couldn't take that psychologically so right um that concept of time is stripped away they study him or whatever and then yeah the star child scene is so so following that well i guess i'm gonna get a little ahead of myself so so i guess that's the explanation is that it's a i can't think of a good word it's not a prison i think i think what what kubrick describes it as is, is like a human zoo that's Which it, yeah. so, sounds a little, um, is still like kind of imprisoning, but yeah, basically, yeah, he's in this, he, he's in this area so the, the aliens can, can study him. And you know, that no sense of time thing is kind of hinted at during the explanation for the others being in hibernation because like they, they literally say, um, like, okay, yeah, like their heartbeat is slowed down. They're unconscious. Like they have no sense of time. And then, oh. you know, Kubrick. Kubrick, yeah, literally uses that same phrasing when he when he's explaining what Dave's going through. So that's almost kind of like a like a like a foreshadowing kind of theme. See, in my mind, I guess you know, all of these are kind of so super similar. It's not really that different of theories. <laughs> like the right? whole no, part no, of no. the time thing is like so it's just a specific detail. Is it time traveling? Is he in two places at once, or is it lack of time? I mean, time is a concept. All of these things mean just as much meaningless information as the other. <laughs> really right yeah yeah but still but that's that's kind of but, but that that makes it super interesting you know? right right yeah yeah it's like what is time you know and how how does the human perceive it 
as compared to these, these captors in, in this theory that that, that Peter is, is saying that 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 Stanley Kubrick supposedly uh, said. Like all this stuff, like the fact that we're even talking about this on this level makes it one of the most like you know mind-bogglingly like ambitious sci-fi films like ever. Just to even be able to like reach you know these concepts that we're mm-hmm. talking about now. Yeah. Does he go on to tell you exactly what the star child is or? Yeah. So what you're talking about to give us some context. So he, he goes from, you know, the Dave that we see in space to now he's in this room and he becomes apparently lives out his life somehow. Now he's this old man at the end of his life. He's laying in bed. The monolith is then standing over him. He reaches out. People have compared this to, the painting of the Sistine Chapel where Adam oh, yeah, is Adam reaching out to God, yeah, to God right. because he's kind of sticking out one finger. So he reaches out. And then the next scene we see is what is apparently Dave, but he looks kind of like a fetus. But this is this is gonna be such a horrible explanation. But like we've been saying, these like this is such a visually communicated story that we just have to describe what it looks like. Um, It shows you know him as the old man reaching out, then the monolith, and then back to like you know the fetus in this kind of like ethereal kind of womb, still in the bed. But then the camera basically goes pushes in on the monolith and kind of goes through it and back into space. And then he, this quote unquote star child fetus is then floating over the earth from space. Yeah. And again, Q thus spake, thus spoke Zarathustra, you know, bum, bum, bum. pretty awesome, uh, full circle, I, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what Doc was asking about. Does Kubrick explain that scene? And I think he does in a way, like he, well, he mentions that that it's this next step in evolution but he doesn't say like why or what what will happen next it's like what you know what what does this mean i don't know like yeah it's also said in in the novel and one of the original plans for the movie that basically the the star child uses his powers to destroy all the all the nukes yeah in Mm. in orbit in the book i feel like they actually they explode or something weird like it's ex- it's more explained like what's happening right there. I'm glad they didn't do that. I'm glad they didn't do- that he didn't do that in the film. Because... That would have been weird. <laughs> I mean, with without other without other foreshadowing or hinting, it would have been kind of random. Whether or not it's like a positive thing that that the Star Child comes back to us, uh, yeah, I I, th- I think it's a p- supposed to be. I would assume, but it just kind of represents a, a, a sense of completeness. Like again, like you know. Or at least just kind of like a, a reset, you know, like, you know, like things come in cycles. So it's just like, you know, sort of like a, like a new, a new beginning, you know, like, mm-hmm. like what, 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 what infants often represent, but just on a very grand scale for humanity. That's a really good way of saying it too, is that like, it, it is literally a baby. Like, <laughs> yeah. So where should we go from here? Final thoughts or you guys want to specifically discuss uh, what anything? I really enjoy this film. The elements we've been describing, how it's, you know, visually and and it's this nonverbal communication just makes it so epic. And yeah, that's all I have to say. I think, yeah. you know what I had to, like when I was when we, when we chose this movie, I was like, this movie is too big for me. I can't uh, probably God, it's got to be in like my top 10 just for the visual nature of it. And um, 
I mean, there's so many things in this movie. I would love to just have like posters of this movie, various scenes in my house. I think it's such mm-hmm. a beautifully shot movie yeah. and and all of that. Yeah, part yeah, of pretty it. much. Yeah, every every shot could be like a beautiful photograph or painting. And, and that in itself of. is such a huge accomplishment for a, what is it like a two and a half hour movie? And then on top of that, uh, th- this conceptual depth of the movie is just uh, mind mind boggling, and and. Uh, yeah. Also, one thing, big thing to point out about this movie is it makes pretty tremendous leaps and bounds in time. I don't know if there's too many movies that cut from <laughs> uh, ape to just like, oh, now we're in space uh, and now we're however many light. I mean, who even knows when he comes back to Earth? It's like, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. and it just kind of does it. And it's just like it doesn't skip. It's it, it, it makes sense. Although I was wondering if I was in the sixties and uh, and I went to go see this movie and I walked in and I like saw the apes, I'd be like, wait, did I walk into the right movie? Cause I thought the shit was supposed to be about fucking <laughs> right. Right. Space. Yeah. <laughs> totally. uh, and there, each, uh-huh. each part really does feel like different, different movies. I don't know in a way like they're so, but, but also at the same time, so um, cohesive and all that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, w- one thing about this movie is that it was very influential in terms of, you know, um, aesthetics and, uh, you know, visual and sound design and stuff, you know, uh, like clearly in, you know, like Star Wars and Alien and other, you know, space movies, but very few movies have actually approached that, again, that conceptual depth of yeah. what it was accomplishing. Like, it, yeah. it is really ambitious and trying to, you know, say something about, yeah, humanity and, and life, yeah, evolution and God and, like, very few movies have tackled so much within that frame and another thing about this movie is uh peter thank you for your, your, your research on the music and all that stuff the music is also a huge part of this movie i mean the fact that that thus spoke whatever uh is now like just called the 2001 theme just i mean such powerful images with the music uh i don't think prior to this i don't know if there was anything like had that much power with the music but uh, uh, that's that's subjective of course but um i wanted i'm glad you brought that up um are you guys familiar with that title thus spoke Thar- zarathustra i know it has something to do with nietzsche yeah basically, so but, um, it's oh, interesting how yeah so <laughs> <That's> trippy <laughs> yeah so so it's a modern it's like modern classical yeah i i like 20th century or something I would say like yeah. early 20th century, probably. Yeah. But like, yeah. Okay, so like we've been saying, this film, you know, I guess the big idea is the evolution of man, right? Showing <laughs> how we've evolved and and sh- showing or giving this, um, you know, visually this idea of this is where we evolved. This is where we took a leap forward from apes to man, from man to star child. And the theme music, which was not an original score is called Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is the title of a book, I guess, or a novel by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And that book was about, it it mentioned a few things, but one of the things it mentioned was the Ubermensch, which the translation to English is the Superman. And it's this next step in humanity. Wow. So it's weird how... The book, the the song is named after the book, which is the song Kubrick picked to represent these moments in the film where 
man is taking this next evolutionary step. Right, right, yeah. And the music fits so well. It's such this, such I mean... layered symbolism. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. just works. Like, wow. Yeah. It was meant to be, and I'm glad that Stanley Kubrick uh, chose that and told the other guy to go take a walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, one, one last thing I, I wanted to say about the film is just, again, remarking on the fact that it's so interpretable. It's like you just bring in these variables, you know, like, um, you know, monolith at, at, the, at the dawn of time, then, you know, discovery on the moon, then, you know, Hal and his actions and what they could possibly represent. And then the final sequence, it's just like all these things are just, are just perfectly placed in the film that you can just draw so many like X, Y, and Z connect- connections about what they're supposed to represent or how each thing connects to each other, or, you know, how it happens. Like, it's just so amazing that, like, it, it just feels like Kubrick and Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke just painted on a canvas, you know, with just all these different colors and just left it for the audience to uh, to interpret. That's just one of the most remarkable things about this movie. One of the elements I still don't understand exactly, I don't have, like, a well-formulated thought about it, is the shapes. So we see these shapes, we see the monolith, it's this rectangular shape. We see Hal. You know, the representation of Hal is like this singular circle, like this singular eye, right, this red right. eye. Um, when we see the Pan Am spaceship, it's this, it's this circular object. And then the, what is that final section called? Into the Infinite or whatever. What is it called? Beyond the Infinite. Yeah, Beyond the Infinite. When they're doing the psychedelic stuff, uh, we see these other shapes. Remember those, like yeah, bluish. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I I know exactly what you're talking about. Like they're well, they're almost kind of like diamonds, sort of like oh yeah, they're above. like dancing. I th- I think uh, in my mind those are like totally I aliens. To examine that. Yeah. Right. Like here's the thing. Like in my mind, those could be like alien ships or like alien kind of like consciousness compounds or something. Like yeah, there, there's something geometric and precise about them and. They're they're really mesmerizing to behold because they have all kinds of like you know, you know waves and lines going over them and stuff and just uh, it was yeah, yeah that that's also a very distinctly geometrical part of of the movie yeah and it's and it's shapes that we haven't been exposed to really and I don't know I think that's just such a genius way to non verbally say like like you don't we don't experience that in films what other film really just uses shapes like that or color i mean i guess thinking to uh david lynch he uses a lot of color to <clears throat> uh-huh tell his stories it, it kind of reminds me of that is like it all it's just using these geometric shapes to tell you what things are and it totally works kind of like with the um this canvas that he's using too because you got you got like these solid types of shapes you're talking about these like and they're like round planets and square shapes and they're dancing in space and all this stuff and they're aligning and it's all very symmetrical. And it's kind of crazy because, um, space is such this giant void, but in this movie, this, uh, consciousness from, from space, which supposedly we evolved from according to its, uh, theory, (laughs) it's, it's showing that like the, the, maybe like the godlike complexity of intelligent life kind of like creates, solid uh, uh meaning in, in chaos like solid shapes like the monolith like planets oh, r- things right, like that yeah 
uh, diamond, whatever the hell. Uh, um, that's a little more it just, obscure. It but... just shows like the the inner the inner order of the universe, right? Inside the ostensible chaos. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe I was confusing when I was trying to explain what it was going. No, by. no, but it could be a metaphor for like a life force. You know, like yeah, you know, like life arising out of the randomness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that that definitely worked well with his paintbrush, like you were talking about, Peter, because he's he's using these these very powerful kind of simplistic shapes but beautiful in every way maybe not the ape costume so much but that was the first thing that johanna said when i was watching it earlier she's like they don't look real and i was like you are ruining this <laughs> oh the apes Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i didn't well i didn't think they were bad i i, I didn't think they were like hokey or whatever it's like yeah, yeah perhaps they could have you know looked a bit more like you know, animated in terms of like the mouth and stuff, but no, no, yeah. Oh, well to me, to me, the apes, like, yeah, you can tell they're just people in monkey suits, but, but to me, I I don't know. It worked for me. I was like, who, you know? Yeah, no. Yeah. Like it works for me. I don't have any complaints. Like, yeah. And we don't have a complete picture of human evolution. So like, who knows? Maybe we did look like that at some point, you know? Like, yeah. Plus, like, again, yeah, they're supposed to show man's transition. So if it looks like a man in a suit, like that's not like you know off from what it's right. supposed to be, you know, right. like symbolically, you know, like. Yeah. So, so for that scene, it's front projected. So all those actors were probably like blinded by <laughs> the projector, like projecting the background around them. Right? Is that maybe? Well, I mean, I, you'd have to find out which scenes specifically, you know, were uh, were shot like that. But I will yeah. say, um, I, I read up that like the you know the the light in the uh, in the leopard's eye, but like that wasn't mm. intentional. But it, yeah, but it, but it happened, and they're like, oh yeah, leave it, leave it in the movie. You know I what? Like that, that. It, it looks cool in the movie, but one thing to say uh, that it's about cats is even if it had moonlight in its eyes, they would be illuminated. That's how cats cat. It might not have been that bright, but that's <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they yeah. they have amazing eyes that that reflect light back. That's how they're able to see at night. So to yeah. me, it's like you could tell it's yeah. lights, but it is natural. You they do were see trying cats like to that. do that for the movie, but because it happened, they left it in. One of the greatest movies ever made by one of the greatest directors to ever live thus far, and uh, I'm glad we got to do this. You know, Stanley Kubrick makes the best film, arguably, of all time, and then he makes the best hoax of all time and convinces the world that we went to the moon. <laughs> I, f- I wanted, I wanted to get more into that because I've heard that conspiracy theory before, but I couldn't really find, uh, I don't, I don't really think there's any gung ho people. Like I know people think we didn't go to the moon, but I think the Stanley Kubrick thing, um, there isn't a lot of strong evidence, but, I did. Well, they have. Well, they have. Find, foot, they have footage, though. <laughs> I, I so I found this. Um, <laughs> I found this video <laughs> online of I think it's just some dude impersonating Stanley Kubrick, and it's supposed to be like somebody interviewing Stanley Kubrick about how he faked the moon landing and like all uh-huh. his different. It's like it's like thirty minutes long. It's ridiculous. Wait, but is it meant to be like a parody or is it like No, yeah. Well, no, I I think it's people like I don't think parody is the right word. Like I think it's trolling. It's probably like it's supposed to be like a, a dr- dramatization or like No, I think he's saying it's trying they're trying to fuck with people. Yeah, I think they're trying to fuck with people. Oh, so like it was That's so funny because it's like a hoax about a hoax. 
Yeah. That's yeah. that's that's clever. It's pretty funny. Um people in the comments section are are like, "Why if this is real, why would Kubrick get this idiot to ask him questions?" Cuz it's just some um, just it just sounds like some random guy. Like, why would Kubrick just sit down with this idiot and get interviewed? But it's kind of it's right. a somewhat convincing Kubrick. Like, it kind of looks like him, but the lighting is really bad, so you can't really tell what he looks like. And it kind of sounds like him. Look, basically, I've heard I've, I've heard theories, and here's like this this thing warrants like a whole other discussion, basically. But I've heard theories that like there's certain symbolism in The Shining that's about like essentially Kubrick trying to confess like what he did and how it took a strain on his marriage like a and whole shit movie like that. About that called uh, what's the name of the room? Uh, room room two thirty seven. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, but again, that warrants a whole other discussion. The only thing I'll say about like the faking the moon landing and specifically like the Cooper thing is like the amount of people required to maintain that level of secrecy would uh, would fall apart. But right. sorry, I'm sorry if, we're, if, we're, if, I, if I'm attracting angry conspiracy commenters by saying this, but sorry, just playing it out there. You know, I, I you know what? I'm OK if we if we don't necessarily have like. All of the conspiracy theorists listening, it, it, you know, it, as long as there's just some, we're not we're not courting that market. <laughs> um, as as long as we can all agree that the idea that we're you know on this giant sphere, you know, hurtling through space, like, like I mean, who believes that? Right, the Earth is flat. Uh, they won't <laughs> let us approach the ice wall. Um, as long as we can agree on that. I mean, you guys have seen maps before, right? They're fucking flat. <laughs> I saw like I, I saw um like a flatter post saying like, "Oh, we have members around the globe." Like, say that again. <laughs> oh my god, that's so freaking hilarious! Great podcast, you guys. Anything else you guys wanted to add? Or uh, this is fun. Yeah, having us on again. Thank you once again. Thank you guys.